Rod was talking about my meeting you in the parking lot. I really do. I, I love this congregation so much. I love you all. And uh, I do. I have to keep myself from meeting you at your car. Uh, I, I could almost <laughs> run in. Sometimes I do. I'm just coming out to your car. Uh, but uh, I do. I, I love you all. God bless you. I'm the luckiest pastor in the world. And actually this morning I was talking about Casey uh, questioning my eyeball thing. Um, it's not that she doesn't want me to do those things. I think she's always afraid that people won't understand that. That, that people won't get me. And that's the fun of this kind. It's why I can't go anywhere else and be a pastor because nobody else would ever get me or understand me. In other places, that probably would get a guy fired or, or at least, you know, referred to counseling or, or something. But, but you all just seem to get me, and I, I appreciate it so much. Um, I think almost every kid was happy with the eyeball except for one little girl that was really disturbed. Because <laughs> uh, I made it look like it fell out of my skull before I gave it to her, you know. Yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm sorry. I can go too far, Casey, and, and, I, and I recognize that. So anyway. Uh, uh, she'll be in counseling one day, and, <laughs> and that'll be my fault. Uh, Acts chapter 6. When Jesus issued the Great Commission, he said that the church would be his witnesses in, in all the world, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, his witnesses. The, the word there that, that is translated witness is, is simply the word martyrus, martyr. What is a martyr? Well, a witness but, but we usually think of martyr as a particular kind of witness. What, what kind of witness? Yeah, one who uh, gives witness by, by literally giving their life. And so Jesus uses that word. He says, you shall be my martyrs uh, in Judea, Samaria, uh, uttermost parts of, of the earth. Um, Jesus gave that great commission, and for a period of time in the book of Acts, they never leave Jerusalem. Everything happens. The whole story unfolds right in and around Jerusalem. But there is a turning point. And that turning point is where we'll be tonight in Acts chapter 6. The turning point is Stephen, and, and, and let's talk about that. The reason I bring Stephen before us tonight is, is I really like putting this story uh, beside the story we read this morning. Now, what's the connection? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that story with the story of Stephen. How are they connected? What do they have in common? Yeah, both of them are in a situation where their witness to the truth brings them the, the, the threat of execution, the, the, the threat of death. But the stories turn out very, very differently, and that's what I want us to think about tonight. Um, we can't read all of this. It would just take too much time and too much breath from me. But let's start in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, we'll move into chapter 7, even into chapter 8, but I'll walk you through it, and hopefully we'll get the, uh, we'll get the big pieces of the story. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Pay attention to how Stephen is described. Here we go. Stephen. A man full of God's grace and power performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen. Isn't that interesting? None of them could stand against the truth, so they persuaded men to lie about Stephen, saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, so they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. 
At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became bright as an angel's. Uh, Amazing. Now, let's go on. From this point, Stephen begins his sermon. Stephen addresses the council, and he talks, and he talks, and he talks. Pick up with me in verse 51. Stephen now at the end of his sermon. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. (coughs) Stephen says, you stubborn people, you're heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And a great wave of persecution started that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He he went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to uh, throw them into prison. Okay, back up. Verse 8. How is Stephen first described? How is he described? A, A man full of God's grace and power, yeah, full of God's grace and power. The name Stephen means, you know Stephen? You know what your name means? Yeah, it means crown. Yeah, the name Stephen means crown. So he has a, a royal name, a, a royal Greek name. Now, where do we first hear of Stephen? When does his name first come up? Yeah, yeah, we call them the first deacons back in verse 6, but in Acts chapter 6, they're never called deacons, but they seem to function as servants as we usually think of deacons. And Stephen is listed first in verse 5, Acts chapter 6, verse 5, he is the very first deacon mentioned, which means he's probably prominent, the leading, he's probably the chairman of deacons, so to speak. He's, he's probably a leader. And there he's called a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, verse 8 a man full of God's grace and power who performed amazing miracles and signs uh, among the people. Other than the apostles themselves, Stephen is the first man who is said to perform signs and and miracles. So so that makes Stephen uh, very, very distinguished uh, within the church. So one day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves got into a a, a debate with Stephen. they ended up actually accusing him of charges that would be punishable by death by Jewish law. 
What's, what's behind their, their, their charges? Why did they make these allegations against Stephen? Because they know their lies. They know that they're lying against Stephen. What's, what's that about? Where does that come from? Yeah, jealousy, of, of course. It says, one day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews, and none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. None of them could stand against the wisdom and, and, and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. And so they devised a plan to silence him through, 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 through lies. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. Where does that come from? For any lie to really have any kind of power, it's usually got to have a little bit of truth mixed in. Is there anything like this that they might have said or that would be associated with, with the Christian movement? Yeah, very same accusations made against Jesus. Flip back quickly to John chapter 2. Just let me remind you. Of, of, of Jesus. John chapter 2 verse 13 says this. Of course, it's, it's the entire scene where Jesus clears the temple. He, he cleanses the temple at the very beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2. And then in verse 17, the disciples remembered the prophecy of the scriptures which said, passion for God's house will consume me. The Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can re rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his body. Yeah, so it goes all the way back to the sort of controversy that surrounded what Jesus would say. Jesus did say, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. But he wasn't talking about the, the physical temple. He was talking about his body. Okay, so that kind of controversy, that kind of misunderstanding and, and, and mispresentation of, of Jesus' message uh, goes all the way back to Jesus. And that's what lies behind these lies, that we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. In, in verse 15, go to 15 with me. At this point... Everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Explain that to me. What, what happened to his face? Yeah, Adrian says it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes on this man in, in, in a way that's, that's physically manifest. What else? What does it remind you of? Or, or, or what does this say? What, what does this mean? Yeah, it's interesting because he said that this man is going to change our customs and go all the way back to Moses. But this is exactly what happened to Moses. When Moses had been in God's presence, what happened? His face would shine. He'd have to put a, a napkin, a, a veil over his face because his face would shine. So it's very, very interesting that this is the sign of the Holy Spirit here. His face shines just like Moses' face shone when he'd been in the presence of God. Stephen's face begins to shine bright as an angel's. From there, Stephen begins to, to, to preach. Now, he's actually supposedly responding to a question from the high priest. What's the question? Chapter 7, verse 1. Are these accusations true? Now, what's the answer to that question? It's, it's a one-word answer. 
really no, they're lies. They're lies. It's sort of like what Jesus said, but, but no, to say that, that, that Stephen wants to destroy the temple, to say that Stephen wants to, to erase all the customs from Moses, no, that's not exactly true. So Stephen has an opportunity to defend himself. Remember this morning when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were referring King Nebuchadnezzar, what did they say in defense of themselves? Yeah, not a word. What did they say? We have no need to make a defense. No need. So they chose not to preach. Stephen chooses to preach. He preaches. He preaches, but he doesn't defend himself. Why not? He just takes an opportunity to, to, to preach a, a big one. I mean, this goes on and on and on. And like I said, if this was me, I'd preach long too. Because at the end of this sermon, it ain't lunch, people. It's, it's, it's your funeral. But that's not what Stephen's doing. Stephen preaches a very long sermon. Do you know anything about the sermon? And we could read the whole thing, but what do you know about it? What's, what's the point of it? What's the message? He goes all the way back, all the way back to, look in verse 2, Abraham. I mean, he's going to read the whole Bible to him. He does. He tells them the entire story, their entire story, the story of the Jews, all the way back to Abraham. What's he doing? He's reminding them of their story and how their story leads to who? To Jesus, absolutely. But he's also reminding them that all through their story, all through their history, they've never listened to the prophets. They've never listened to God's messengers. They've never listened. So this is the theme that Stephen continues to hammer. God's continued his covenant. God's been faithful. You've never been faithful. You've never listened. It's, it's, it's an absolutely amazing, amazing sermon because what Stephen does in the process of preaching is that he turns the tables completely. Now, it's supposed to be Stephen on trial. And Stephen should be preaching or he should be defending himself in such a way so that the message is, I am innocent. But that's not what he does. What does he do? Somebody's on trial here, but apparently not him. Because at the end of his sermon, what does he say? You people are guilty. Wait, wait, was that what we were doing? Was it the Sanhedrin on trial? Well, no. Well, yes. Yes, no. From, from Stephen's mind, it, it is. He puts them on trial. You stubborn people. Verse 51. Remember, they're about to kill him. But he really doesn't hold back at all. You stubborn people. You're heathen. You're heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you ever forever resist the Holy Spirit. That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. Yeah. Interesting thing is, this sounds a lot like somebody else's sermon. Who? In the book of Acts, sounds a lot like Peter at, at Pentecost. It sounds a whole, I mean, it's almost like, it's almost like he read Acts chapter 2. Because it's nearly the same sermon. Nearly identical to what Peter preaches at Pentecost. Now, now remember, what happens after P Peter preaches at Pentecost? Yeah, they repent. When the people hear this message, nearly the identical message at, at Pentecost, their hearts are pricked. And what do they ask in response? What do we do? 
how do we be saved? I mean, when Peter preaches this same sermon, it's a revival. It is the most amazing day ever. It's the birthday of the church. And thousands of people are saying, how do we get saved? What do we need to do? They repent. But nothing like this happens when Stephen preaches. How do you account for the difference in response? It's the same sermon. This would be my luck. Peter preaches it and everybody's downloading the podcast. Stephen preaches it and they pick up stones to kill him. Yeah, it's, it's a different crowd. Peter was preaching to the people who had come into, into Jerusalem for the Passover. Peter was preaching to the people. Now, the people are guilty too. The high council, they're religious. They don't see themselves as guilty. They don't appreciate the, the, the truth. It's interesting, though, how Stephen doesn't change the message for the people. Preaches the very, very same message, and you are guilty. Verse 54, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fist at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, see, sometimes you just probably might not have to tell people everything. He told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. I said that when Peter preached this sermon, it was a response, a good response. When Stephen preaches it, it's sort of not a good response. But what happens at the end of Stephen's sermon for Stephen? Before that, at the end of his sermon, even before that, yeah, the heavens open for Stephen. I mean, th this is amazing. This is what happens when Stephen preaches, that the heavens open and Stephen himself gets to see the glory of God. A and what else? He sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing in, in the place of honor at God's right hand. I don't know what any preacher hopes to happen at the end of a sermon, but I'd, I'd take that. I take that. And then he tells him, he says, look, I see, I see the glory of God and I see the Son of Man. I see Jesus standing at the place of honor at the right hand of God. And then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting that they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Explain verse 57 to me. Explain that. Of, of everything he said, this is what pushed them over the edge. I, I see the glory of God, and I see Jesus standing at his right hand. What is it that makes that unbearable, infuriating for the Jews? They put Jesus to death. So what has Stephen just said? I see Jesus, and where is Jesus? He's standing at the right hand of God. He, he is in the place of honor in God's presence, and this is the message that they cannot bear. 
of everything else he has said, this is that for which he's got to die. They cannot accept that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is at the place of honor at God's right hand. So they put their hands over their ears and begin shouting. They rushed him. They drag him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen, as they stoned him, Stephen, he, he prays. Now, y'all know what stoning is, correct? Typically, they would take you out of the city. They would often throw you off a cliff or, or, or into a deep hole so that they could that they could drop, that they would want to use rocks so large that you can't throw. So, so literally, they would usually throw you into a lower place and, and then drop the largest rocks possible and just continue to drop rocks on your head, on your body, and, and until you're not moving anymore. And while this happens to Stephen, he prays. What does he pray first? Because his prayer is in two parts. The first part of his prayer is, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knows he's dying. He knows he's dying. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We've talked about this before, but I'll I'll remind you of it. Uh, In in verse 56, when Stephen sees Jesus, what is Jesus doing? He's standing. Uh, In most every other reference of Jesus at the right hand of God, he is seated. Yeah, but because to be seated is a sign of authority. You understand, if, if you're important, you sit and everybody else stands in your presence in, in honor of you. So Jesus is typically seated at the right hand of God in order to demonstrate his authority, his, his reign, his rule. But in this instance, Jesus is standing. Why is he standing? To show approval for Stephen? Yeah, yeah, it's as if Jesus stands to welcome Stephen, to to welcome him. And Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's exactly what Jesus is doing, standing to receive him. It's it's the most beautiful picture ever of of Jesus who stands to welcome Stephen home. So the the prayer's in two parts. That first part is... is, is, uh, is, is, is muttered, it may be just prayed in his heart, we don't know. But the second part of the prayer, he shouts. He shouts. And what does he shout? What are the, what's the part of the prayer that he shouts? Lord, forgive them. Don't charge them with this sin. Don't charge them. He shouts that. Why does he shout that? Yeah, so so that they will hear the word of grace, the word of forgiveness, so so that they will hear the word of pardon. Lord, don't charge them with the sin. And with that, he died. Yeah, talk about that, JC, because that's one of the things that Acts wants you to know. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. So J.C., he was all about it. At this moment, 
He has no conflict within himself. He is in total agreement. He doesn't participate in the stoning. That's interesting. But what does he do? He watches their purses. Yeah. He holds their coats. He's in complete agreement with this. This is Saul's thing. He's in so much agreement with it that, that, that what does he do? He's young, he's up and coming, but he's also going a lot. If you look there in verse 3 of chapter 8, dream that Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So he's a deeply religious and deeply wicked man at this point. But JC says he's there, and the fact that he's there has to affect him. In what way, J.C.? It says he's in complete agreement, and after this, he goes on a tear to see how many Christians he can possibly persecute and, and throw in prison. Yeah. Never be able to forget this. Yeah, I agree. I think that's why it's, it's emphasized here. Claude, what do you think? And then Larry, Claude. In, in Saul's religious mind, he's being zealous for his faith. He, he sees this as, as being very on fire, very focused, very zealous for the faith. He sees this as his religious duty. Yeah. So, so misguided by his own faith. Larry. Yeah, Stephen's death is a very, very important turning point. Yeah, um, let, let's back up a little bit. Saul was one of the witnesses. So, so Saul saw this. So what did he see? J.C. says that he'd, he'd never be able to forget this. What is it about the death of Stephen that you think he would never, ever be able to forget? The, 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 the grace, the, the, the passion. Yeah. What else? Nancy, did you say something? He's a part of the killing. Yeah. He hears the gospel. If Saul's never heard the gospel before, and we don't know that he has, then that's interesting. Maybe the first time Saul hears the gospel is out of the mouth of Stephen. Maybe this is the first time he's heard it. Very possible, and maybe likely. So Saul's just heard the gospel for the first time. Well, what else? Yeah, dream of. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, that's amazing. Because later when Jesus will, will confront Saul on the road to Damascus, what does he say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Yeah, so Jesus stands because literally uh, he is being harmed. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's beautiful, dreaming. That's important. Yeah. So Saul doesn't just hear the gospel. He sees how a Christian dies. And that will be something he'll never, ever forget. He, he, he watches how a, a Christian dies. So but back to the question of the day, the burning question of the day. Why does, why does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get such a happy ending? Their story turns out so good that it becomes a story we tell our children. We sing songs about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, that story turns out amazing. Fourth man in the furnace. I mean, that is glorious. That is such a great story. They come out. They don't even smell like smoke. But Stephen he dies a horrible, bloody death. And he's not spared that at all. He felt every blow. Why? Each, each, of those, each of those outcomes, each of those moments have, have particular meaning. Yeah, in, in their own occasion, in their own situation. Yeah. Meaning for whom, Adrian? I mean, who gets to decide what they mean? Yeah, it all goes back to, to, to God's purposes. And remember, we serve God, and so our lives serve God. And I would think any of us who love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind, we would lay our lives down for him. And, and this is what these men do. In the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it, it suited God's purposes to deliver them in a miraculous and beautiful way. And so there is much that comes out of their deliverance. In Stephen's case, there is much that comes from his death. Claude, what were you going to say? Yeah, Stephen's death becomes the, the turning point in the book of Acts because after this point, the church is scattered. But what's the effect of scattering the church? 
Yeah, it spreads the gospel and the church begins to grow. As Larry says, this, this becomes the, uh, the gospel reaching the Gentiles. The gospel begins to leave Jerusalem. It, 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 it takes this. It takes this horrible, bloody death to, uh, to set the gospel in motion. Yeah. Yeah, we trust him. And I said that this morning, that the amazing example of faith that we get from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the way that they really don't seem to have any regard for what's going to happen to them. That's where they're so different from me and you. I'm all about what's going to happen to me. And I'm all about that. And standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, I'd still be all about that. I will be thinking about what's going to happen to me. And I will be thinking that, that if God is faithful to me, he'll deliver me. But, but that's not at all the way they think. And that's also not the way Stephen thinks. And, and as I said this morning, faith does not fasten itself on the outcome. A lot of us think that faith is just simply having a lot of confidence in what we hope happens. A lot of confidence in, in how we hope things turn out. But that is not truly what faith is. Faith focuses like a laser, not on what's going to happen to me, but on God. God is the focus of my faith. It's not my confidence in, in, in my hope in, in how things are going to turn out. It, it's simply God. So at the moment when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are facing death, they say, listen, whether we live or whether we die, we know that there's a God who can deliver us and let it be known that we, we died for him and never will we bow to your idol. And at the moment of Stephen's death, who is it that he sees? Who are his eyes focused on? Well, Jesus. Yeah. He doesn't even see them picking up the rocks. It's beside the point. He's looking at Jesus. Faith looks at Jesus with a total disregard for self. It's, it's just an amazing story and amazing to put the two stories together. Uh, just before Matt and Courtney Powell left for India, I had a chance to take them to lunch and talk to them. They were just telling me about the situation there in India, which is an incredibly crowded, populated country, predominantly Hindu. For a long time, India's had a relative uh, freedom of religion, but Matt was saying that very recently they've elected a new leader who is inclined to be much more strict and perhaps much more restrictive toward the church. And the Christians there, the few that there are, are beginning to anticipate a new wave of persecution like they haven't seen in, in, in decades. How do you think they received that anticipation of persecution in India? For, for decades, they've had relative peace, but now they're anticipating that the government is about to tighten the screws on the church. How do you think they respond to that news? You think they're afraid? What would you say, Marie? Many of them already do, uh, but Marie says perhaps go underground, stop meeting in, in churches. Actually, the, the shocking thing for me, as Matt explained it, is, is that they're actually a little bit excited about that. They're actually a little bit encouraged by this. 
because they seem to know something about suffering and persecution that you and I don't know anything about. Why would that be good news? Well, because there's a crown waiting for them. There's a reward for suffering. We know that. But what else? In every single instance when the church is persecuted, what happens to the church? It grows. It's, it's an amazing paradox. You cannot silence the gospel. And every single place they spill the blood of martyrs, it's like seed for the church. It just grows. I'm telling you, you can't watch a Christian die and not see the truth of their lives speak for itself. It's a powerful witness. And Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. You will be my martyrs in Jerusalem and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And they know, they know because they've seen it, that wherever the church is attacked, wherever the church is persecuted, it only makes the church stronger. Nicole. Yeah. Yeah, we read that this morning. You're going to be dragged out of the synagogues. You're going to stand before rulers and authorities. They're going to persecute you. But this is your opportunity, opportunity to tell the rulers and all the unbelievers about me. It's an opportunity. Rhonda, go ahead. Absolutely. It's really, really strange. If you're not afraid of death, what? <laughs> if you're not afraid to die, you have no fear. I mean, if you're not afraid to die, what would you be afraid of? And this is the message of Jesus. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. They cannot touch your soul. If we cannot be afraid of death, we would have no fear. No fear. Yeah. Go ahead, Willie. Yeah. 
I, I hope we would be that strong. Um, I don't know how much faith to have in us. Um, many of us won't be witnesses now because we just fear being a little bit embarrassed or, or we're, we're afraid that we won't know what to say and we'll, and we'll look foolish. We, I can't imagine what we will do when we would ha really have to pay a price for, for our faith. God help us. Let's close with prayer. Let's have a word. Lord Jesus, you said that if anyone wanted to be your follower, they would have to pick up a cross and follow you. You've made it clear from the beginning that to follow you was to come and die. Lord, we've turned the gospel into something else. We've turned church into something else, Lord. We hardly seem like we're handling life and death issues here, Lord. Help us. Help us, God, to have lives that speak of the truth. And, and help us, Lord, not to fear people and what they can do to us. Help us, Lord, instead to focus our lives, to focus our faith upon you, O oh God, and to fear you and you alone. Lord, I pray for our church. Lord, we want only blessings. We want only good times, Lord. But I know that sometimes you really can't use what's not been broken first. And, and Lord, whatever it takes to put our church in a situation where we will be your witnesses, Lord, we just ask you to have your way with us. If first we must be broken so that, Lord, we can be used and, Lord, we want to be used. We would rather live lives, Lord, of danger and peril if it means following you than live lives of comfort and safety which lead us further from you. Lord, be with our children. Be with the young people, Lord, and the world in which they are growing up. They may never know the peace and stability that we have known. God, help them and make them strong. And I pray for Christians around the world, most of whom face genuine persecution. I pray for all of those who continue to be in the path of ISIS. I pray, Lord, for all of those in India preparing for a coming wave of persecution. I pray for those in Syria. I pray for Christians who have nearly been driven out of Iraq. I pray for those in Egypt. I pray for those tonight in prison. I pray for pastors who will be arrested for preaching the message I preach today. God bless them. God be with them. And God give us the strength and courage that brothers and sisters display around the world. We thank you, Lord, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their faith, their courage, and their deliverance. We thank you, Lord, for Stephen and his faith and his courage and his death. We pray, Lord Jesus, that in life or in death, we will put our lives in your hands. Fear only you. Worship only you. Let us be your witnesses. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I love you all. Have a good week. Happy birthday, Nancy McElroy. 80